Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's web radio with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to better manage your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. All of that delivered to you with the benefit of almost 25 years of experience in treating mental illness without the hype and distortion of other media sources. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it, and trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Again, this is pre-recorded, as usual, for initial airing on Wednesday evening, February 24th, 2016. Wow, another month of the new year already about to be wrapped up. Time certainly marches on. And another reminder for those of you who are suffering from seasonal affective disorder, your suffering is coming to a close as we get very close to turning the calendar to March. Uh, When we get up Sunday morning, March 13th, we'll be back to Daylight Savings Time. So hang in there just a couple of few more weeks. Well, as far as what I found to be the top mental health-related story of this past week, certainly that has to be uh, a study showing that deaths from sedatives are quietly increasing. Um, And they're talking about benzodiazepines. Uh, Prescription opioids certainly have also made headlines or skyrocketing rates of deaths from overdoses. But this new report shows that overdose deaths from another group of medications, again, the sedatives called benzodiazepines, are also increasing. The researchers found that the death rate in the United States from overdoses on benzodiazepines has increased more than fivefold since 1996. Now, the benzodiazepines are a group of medications that are sedatives. Uh, They're often called benzos for short. And you probably are not familiar with that term, or you may not be, but I'm sure you've heard of many of the benzos by their individual trade names. Uh, There's the first one, the granddaddy of them all, Valium, and then there's Lots and lots of others that came later, Librium, Cirax, uh, Xanax, Ativan, Klonopin, those last three are the, the newer ones. Believe it or not, when Valium first came out in the 60s, it was supposed to replace the barbiturates, which uh, up until that point were used as sedatives. And it was recognized that the barbiturates could be 
abused and uh, could be addictive. So here comes Valley Mo. Well, this is sedative, but it's not going to be addictive and it's not going to be likely to be abused. Big joke, right? Well, in any case, these medicines are sometimes used in combination with opioids to treat people with chronic pain. So you have people who were getting prescriptions for both narcotic opioid painkillers, which in and of themselves are very addictive and very dangerous, and a lot of people are dying from overdose, overdoses of them. And these same patients are also taking the sedatives, the benzodiazepines. Pretty lethal combination. And as a matter of fact, this is part of the reason why prescription drug overdoses are now more common than illegal drug overdoses. Uh, more people die of overdoses of these sedatives and painkillers than do of things like heroin or cocaine. <clears throat> now, the overdoses involving benzodiazepines are a public health problem that has gone under the radar. That, according to Dr. Marcus Backhuber, the study's lead author and an assistant professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York, the study also found that overdoses from benzodiazepines have increased at a much faster rate than prescriptions for the drugs indicating that people have been taking them in a riskier way over time. Well, I agree with the assessment. It's something that's been under the radar. The prescription painkiller abuse and overdoses certainly have caught the attention of uh, the legal authorities, the Drug Enforcement Administration. But the benzodiazepines are now only coming to light as something that's also uh, a public health problem. And that's an interesting point they make. Let's go over that again. The overdoses have increased at a faster rate than prescriptions, meaning prescriptions for the drugs don't seem to be increasing that quickly uh, or, or that markedly over time, yet there are many more overdose deaths. So people are using them uh, in a riskier way is the appropriate conclusion. The researchers looked at data on the use of these drugs in the United States between 1996 and 2013. They found that the number of benzodiazepine prescriptions purchased over the 18-year time period increased by 67%. That's by two-thirds from 8.1 million prescriptions in 1996 to 13.5 million in 2013. The researchers also found that the death rate from overdosing on the drugs increased from 0.58 deaths per 100,000 adults in 1996 to 3.14 deaths per 100,000 adults in 2013, that translates into a more than five-fold increase during that time. They don't know for sure what exactly may have caused this increase, 
but it may have something to do with greater quantities of benzodiazepines being prescribed to patients. People may also be taking higher doses of the drugs per day, taking them for extended periods of time, or getting them from sources other than doctors, which is quite likely these drugs are readily sold on the street if you can't get a doctor to prescribe it for you. Now, all these factors can increase the risk of an overdose. Moreover, the risk of an overdose increases if people combine benzodiazepines with opioids, which are powerful painkillers. Combining benzodiazepines with alcohol also increases the risk of an overdose. Though the issue of increasing death rates from opioid overdoses has attracted a lot of attention from the media, people need to be aware that another part of the equation is these benzodiazepine drugs. And the researchers point out that deaths from these overdoses are preventable. Benzodiazepine sedatives are most commonly prescribed to treat people with anxiety, but the authors point out anxiety can also be treated in some cases with talk therapy. Well, <clears throat> the study that we're talking about was published on February 18th in the American Journal of Public Health. I think I want to take issue with their assertion about, well, you don't necessarily need to take benzodiazepine sedatives, you can just do therapy. While therapy can be very helpful in the treatment of anxiety, if the anxiety is severe and disabling enough, therapy alone probably isn't going to be sufficient. However, if the anxiety is that crippling and disabling that therapy alone isn't enough, there are much safer medications to treat the anxiety than the benzodiazepines. Of course, we treat anxiety of any type with antidepressants. Uh, this is confusing for a lot of people. The category of drugs is called antidepressants. That implies that all those medications do is treat depression, which could not be further from the truth. Antidepressants also treat anxiety, even if the patient is not the least bit depressed. So the term is unfortunate and confusing, but definitely uh, those medications will treat anxiety of all types, whether we're talking about generalized anxiety, panic attacks, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, social anxiety, uh, the antidepressants, especially the SSRI antidepressants, are very effective in treating all of these types of anxiety, and they're almost impossible to overdose on, uh, and they're not addictive, and they don't have serious, serious side effects. The benzodiazepines are dangerous drugs, and they have very severe side effects. Not only are they extremely addictive, but research over the past few years has found the people who take as few as 18 doses of them in an entire calendar year have higher 
death rates than people who take none of them. Uh, also, regular and long-term use of benzodiazepines can result in permanent damage to cognitive functions like attention and memory and concentration, uh, leading to a person for all the world appearing as if they have dementia. Benzodiazepines can also slow down your metabolism and make you gain weight. Uh, if you have a breathing problem like sleep apnea or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema, what have you, they can make it worse by suppressing uh, your normal breathing reflexes. By all accounts, uh, they should be taken off the market, but trust me, that's never going to happen because too many people are taking them. We have to take our first commercial break here. We'll finish up this topic and have other mental health-related news. When we come back, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about the increasing rates of overdose deaths of benzodiazepine sedatives including very popular and widely abused drugs, Xanax, Ativan, Klonopin, Valium, Cirax, Librium, and so on. Now, 
These medications, as I was saying right before the break, very dangerous, very serious side effects. So why are they so readily available? Well, uh, a lot, many, many doctors, in fact, the majority of doctors, most of those primary care physicians and sometimes specialists, really don't take the dangers of these drugs seriously enough, and they are very widely prescribed. Uh, it's part of the quick-fix culture that we have, and uh, <clears throat> the blame is shared in certain portions between both patients and doctors. Um, doctors are pressed for time. They have to see many, many patients in a day. Um, and uh, a series of complex patients will quickly get them extremely behind on their schedule. So whenever a patient raises any kind of concern, uh, as quickly as they can dispatch that issue, that's what they'll do. So the easiest thing they can do for a patient who complains of anxiety is to give them a powerful, fast-acting sedative that will certainly get rid of their anxiety. Um, it takes a lot more time to do something more to help that person. What's going on in your life that's causing you stress? Maybe you should talk to a therapist. Maybe you should go see a psychiatrist or here. Maybe take this antidepressant, which, even though you're not depressed, will also treat your anxiety, even though it's not going to calm you down immediately and that you will need to take it a while before your anxiety decreases. All that takes a lot longer than just firing off a prescription for a benzodiazepine and say, great, see you back in three, four, six months or whatever it is. <clears throat> now, on the patient side of this, patients don't want to take medicines that will take a long time to work. Uh, at any given antidepressant, whether it's being used to treat depression or in this case that we're talking about that it's being used to treat anxiety, doesn't work instantly. Uh, a good antidepressant on a good day will take at least two weeks, sometimes a little sooner, before a person thinks they feel a little bit better. And, of course, complete relief takes several weeks longer. Uh, patients don't find that satisfactory when they're extremely and severely anxious. Uh, they want instant relief, which is understandable, uh, but the drugs that do that are very dangerous. Uh, the benzodiazepines uh, are so addictive because they act so powerfully and quickly. Xanax in particular, um, uh, it is analogous to uh, it being so powerfully acting and short acting, it's analogous to the crack form of cocaine, which is uh, the most insidious, most in addictive form of cocaine. Uh, again, like the Xanax of the benzodiazepines, it's, it acts most powerfully and most quickly. Uh, but the problem is when you take a Xanax and you get that instant rush of calm, about four hours later or even sooner if you're not so lucky, your anxiety comes roaring back, maybe even worse than before you took the Xanax, so you need to take another one to calm down, and so on and so forth, until before you know it, you're hooked and you need more doses and higher doses just to keep 
that anxiety under control. Where the effects of the benzodiazepines are especially insidious is in the elderly. If you yourself are over the age of 60 or you have family members who are and you're taking a benzodiazepine, um, that needs to be gotten rid of very gradually, of course, to prevent withdrawal symptoms. But these are especially dangerous for older patients. In particular, uh, anyone 65 years of age and older is at risk for falls if they're taking a benzodiazepine. And we all know what happens to people who are that age and older when they fall and their bones are brittle. Uh, also, again, the danger that I talked about before of memory and concentration problems is magnified in people who are older, and those processes start to slow down a little bit anyway with natural uh, course of aging. <clears throat> the benzodiazepines include a, cat, uh, a group that are only used as sleeping pills, uh, not just sedatives. So you've heard of very popular prescription sleeping pills like Ambien and Lunesta. Those are not benzodiazepines, but there are other older prescription uh, sleeping pills that are also benzodiazepines. Restoril and Dalmain, just to name a couple, are, are prescription sleeping pills, but like Valium, Ativan, Xanax, and Clonopin, and Librium, and Cirax, and so on and so forth, oh, Transine, that's another benzodiazepine sedative, those uh, sleeping pills, Restoril and Dalmain, and um, let's see, there's another one called Doral. Um, it's pretty rare, but it's out there. So several sleeping pills as well as anti-anxiety drugs are benzodiazepines with very dangerous side effects. Uh, <clears throat> just be aware of this. Uh, if you're taking it, my advice to you would be to have your doctor supervise you in tapering off of it very, very gradually. And if you have an elderly family member or parent or grandparent, uh, they're at risk, and it should be tapered off and discontinued. All right, moving on to our next topic on psychiatry today. Regular and long-time listeners to this podcast will know that I feel passionate about combating the effects of bullying on children and adolescents. And I've communicated to you that the long-term consequences are very well documented. Uh, people who suffer this in childhood and adolescence have both mental health and physical health problems later in life. Finally, the tide has been turning in the last 10 years or so and this previous culture of, well, that's just something kids go through and I went through it, so all kids have to go through it, and that's just part of growing up. That's changing, and more is being done to combat the effects of bullying. Uh, so I found this article on a very interesting and innovative anti-bullying program that was launched in Finland, but is 
being considered for other countries and also the United States. And the study of the method actually was done by a university here in the States. Um, it was a UCLA-led study. So I wanted to bring you that. <clears throat> Many programs to reduce bullying in primary and secondary schools have proven ineffective, but this UCLA-led study finds one that works very well. It was a study of more than 7,000 students in 77 elementary schools in Finland that found that one program greatly benefited the mental health of sixth graders who experienced the most bullying. It significantly improved their self-esteem and reduced their depression. The research-based anti-bullying program called KIVA, that's K-I capital V-A, includes role-playing exercises to increase the empathy of bystanders and computer simulations that encourage students to think about how they would intervene to reduce bullying. Uh, the term KIVA comes from Kuisamista uh, Vastan, which means against bullying in Finnish, while the word Kiva means nice. Now, this Kiva is one of the world's most effective anti-bullying programs. The findings show that the most tormented children, those facing bullying several times a week, can be helped by teaching bystanders to be more supportive. Uh, what they're talking about in terms of the bystanders and approaching uh, those kids is when kids are seeing someone being bullied, uh, those are the bystanders. They're watching someone else being bullied. What can be very, very effective in combating bullying is if the bystanders intervene. They stop and say, hey, stop doing that to him or her. And uh, they intervene with the bully. They're not the one being bullied, but they're watching it. And uh, they can uh, intervene, uh, try to influence the bully to stop, try to show the bullied child some support uh, and protection and uh, remove them from the situation or what have you. But just somehow or another intervene to stop the bullying. 39 of the 77 schools in the study used the Kiva technique. In the other 38 schools, students were just given information about combating bullying, but these efforts were much less comprehensive. Anti-bullying programs are typically evaluated based on whether they decrease the average rates of bullying. Until this study, no school-wide programs have been found to help those who most need help, that is, children who are bullied repeatedly. Kiva significantly reduced the depression of the 4% of 6th graders who were bullied most frequently on at least a weekly basis. The researchers also found improved self-esteem among the approximately 15% of 6th graders who had been bullied at least a few times per month.
Now, uh, a recent meta-analysis of 53 anti-bullying programs worldwide found the Kiva program to be one of the most effective. Now, uh, we'll take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion of this anti-bullying program, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about an innovative anti-bullying program pioneered in Finland and a recent study done in UCLA. The odds that a given student experienced bullying were one and a half to nearly two times higher in the schools where they did not use this technique, again called Kiva, which means nice, compared to uh, schools nine months after Kiva's implementation. Uh, So one and a half to two times uh, less bullying in the schools where they use this technique. The researchers' analysis shows that this Kiva technique improves students' perceptions of the school environment, especially among those who are bullied. For sixth graders, it also improves their mental health. Typically, we think individuals with mental health needs must be addressed individually. But this school-wide program is very effective for the children who most need support. 
students in all grade levels studied fourth through sixth benefited in terms of having significantly more favorable perceptions of the school environment. This was especially true for the students who were most frequently bullied before the intervention. And remember, the, the key part of the intervention is helping to teach bystanders to be more supportive of the kids who are being bullied. The study was published online in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. Researchers made a point of stating that they do not advocate zero-tolerance school policies uh, when it comes to bullying, which they say punish students, but do not teach them about bullying. They say Kiva is much more effective in leading students to be kinder to one another. Kiva is now Finland's national anti-bullying program. It is being tested and used in several other European countries, and it is being evaluated in the United States. Uh, so hopefully it will be implemented here in the States soon. And it is based on scholarly research about bullying. Uh, previous research on bullying by the study authors found that people on social media are often unsupportive of cyberbullying victims who have shared highly personal feelings. And unfortunately, bullies are often considered the, quote, cool kids in school. Nearly three in four teenagers say they were bullied online at least once during the previous 12-month period. And nearly half of the sixth graders at two Los Angeles area schools said they were bullied by classmates during a five-day period. In short, it remains a serious problem, but very importantly, much more attention is being paid to what the consequences are and how uh, prevention uh, can be most effective. Next up on Psychiatry Today, I found this article called The Science Behind Why You Get Hangry. That's right, hangry, H-A-N-G-R-Y. For those of you who've never heard that term, it's kind of a conflation of the words hungry and angry, a concept you may have heard of. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, connection I made to this was uh, previous research that documented you should never have a potentially difficult or contentious discussion with your spouse or significant other when you're hungry because that's more likely to make you angry and of course that's going to uh, lead to a very negative interaction. So I thought, well, okay, let me take a look at this article, see what it has to offer, and I, I thought it was definitely worth sharing with you. So here goes. All right, you know the feeling you were in a rush out the door and skipped breakfast, or maybe you have a huge dinner planned 
So you're skimping on your usual afternoon snacks. Slowly but surely, your plain old hunger turns into a simmering grouchiness, and you're officially hangry. While it's not yet a valid defense in court, hunger is a real physiological phenomenon. When the body is deprived of blood glucose, which happens when you haven't eaten recently, the brain receives all kinds of signals to behave aggressively. Here's what's really going on when your empty stomach triggers that ragey feeling in your head. Well, what does it mean when you're hangry? We've all been there. You're snapping at your partner and shooting death stares at the waiter who's slow to take your order. But why? Well, as one study puts it, aggressive and violent behaviors are restrained by self-control. Self-control consumes a lot of glucose in the brain, suggesting that low glucose and poor glucose metabolism are linked to aggression and violence. Exercising self-control all day long uses a lot of energy, largely in the form of glucose. Our bodies break down food to make glucose, which helps the brain function. A simple shortage of this essential sugar, like when you haven't eaten in the past, say, eight hours, can hamper the brain's ability to exercise self-control. But there's more to it than that. The body tries to compensate when blood glucose decreases by releasing certain hormones. These hormones, like cortisol and adrenaline, can increase aggressiveness, amping up your hangry behavior. <clears throat> well, what are the consequences of getting hangry? Your hunger can manifest in many ways. One study actually measured couples' aggressive urges and behaviors by having them stick pins into a voodoo doll or blast each other with an air horn through headphones. Researchers found that couples were more likely to behave aggressively toward each other when their blood sugar was low. You know, when I first read this article, I'm like, really, some researchers actually had people blast each other with an air horn, air horn through headphones, or stick pins in voodoo dolls? Are they serious? I can just imagine the grant proposal. These researchers asking for money to to fund this research. Well, yes, we're going to take couples and uh, we're going to see if they can get angry at each other and. Uh, blast each other through headphones with an air horn or uh, stick pins and voodoo dolls for the other. It never ceases to amaze me what passes for scholarly research sometimes. Okay, well, if you thought that was really out there, then another study researchers cited the Kola or Koya Indians of Peru as historical evidence that hunger is for real. Plagued with chronically low blood glucose, this tribe had a reputation for violence 
and unpremeditated murder was common. Hmm. Well, aside from potentially putting you in couples counseling at least, or maybe jail at worst, a low blood sugar supply to the brain has other negative side effects too, including fatigue and impaired concentration. Even if you don't necessarily have an aggressive response to low blood sugar, you certainly are not likely to be firing on all cylinders. So how do you stop hanger? Well, the best way to avoid getting hangry, of course, obviously, is to eat regularly. Think about the four-hour rule. Never go more than four hours without something to eat. Now, in case you think that sounds too often, I, I think we should all consider the fact that the human body was not engineered for just three big meals a day. It is much healthier, whether you're talking about hanger or maintaining even blood sugar, uh, or certainly people who suffer from hypoglycemia. Uh, it's healthier all around for all of us to have five or six small meals a day, not the three big ones. Uh, we should all eat that way. Uh, but certainly having something at least at, at four-hour intervals will uh, stay ahead of your hunger pangs and um, keep hanger under control or prevent it. <clears throat> it's important to note that a genuine need to increase blood glucose is not necessarily associated with a grumbling stomach. Uh, so by just staying on a schedule, you're, you're keeping yourself ahead of the hunger pangs. And it's also important to mention stick to healthy snacks uh, to avoid consuming too many calories, uh, fruits, nuts, to name a couple. And to maintain steady energy levels, foods that are high in slow-burning carbohydrates like fiber, as well as protein like nuts, are your best bet. And while prevention is the best medicine, you're not totally up the creek if you missed a meal. Uh, fruit offers the body lots of easily accessible sugars in addition to having other nutritional benefits. And it's a great choice for getting your brain a quick hit of energy. Uh, so again, uh, think about fruit and nuts. And when it comes to fruit, especially berries, uh, nuts and berries, I call that the woodland creatures diet. Uh, but they're both... Both groups of foods are very rich in antioxidants, which is very healthy for the brain. And uh, the nuts also have healthy fats, which are helpful for the brain. Good food. So there you go, what it is to be hangry. And I still think it just reinforces especially. Uh, avoid being hangry when you're interacting with your spouse and you two will get along a lot better. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on this podcast, we're going to talk about how changes in brain connectivity protect against developing bipolar disorder. Sounds a little bit esoteric, but the obvious implication is that if researchers could figure this out, it would lead to potential new treatments, new ways to diagnose, who knows. So let's take a look at what they found. There are naturally occurring changes in brain wiring that can help patients at high genetic risk of developing bipolar disorder avert the onset of the illness, according to a new study led by researchers at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, published online in the journal Translational Psychiatry. People who are at high genetic risk of developing bipolar disorder are those with close genetic relatives who have bipolar disorder, especially their parents. The study's findings open up new avenues for researchers to explore ways the brain can prevent disease expression, also known as resilience, with the hope of developing better treatments. Bipolar disorder, which was formerly known as manic depressive illness, is a brain disorder that causes fluctuations in patients' mood, energy, activity levels, and the ability to carry out day-to-day tasks. Bipolar disorder is highly heritable 
meaning that people with a parent or sibling with bipolar disorder have a much greater risk of developing the illness compared with individuals with no family history. It is the case that most any psychiatric illness is uh, at least in part genetically based. However, we know the most about bipolar disorder in this regard. Um, <clears throat> researchers for many, many years have looked at family trees and been able to track uh, bipolar disorder in uh, multiple affected relatives. Researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, to map the connectivity patterns in the brains of three groups, patients with bipolar disorder, their siblings who did not develop the illness, called resilient siblings, and unrelated healthy individuals. While having their brains scanned, each participant was asked to perform an emotional and a non-emotional task that taps into two different aspects of brain function known to be affected by bipolar disorder. The resilient siblings and the patients showed similar abnormalities in the connectivity of brain networks involved in emotional processing. However, the resilient siblings showed additional changes in brain wiring within these networks. The ability of the siblings to rewire their brain networks, or actually not by force of will, but the fact that uh, it happened, means that they have adaptive neuroplasticity, uh, a fancy way of saying their brain cells can adapt which may help them avoid the disease, even though they still carry the genetic predisposition of bipolar disorder uh, when they process emotional information. A family history is the greatest risk factor for developing bipolar disorder. It, like most mental health problems, it usually stems from a combination from genetic predisposition and the wrong amount or the wrong type of environmental stress. Now, <clears throat> while we often focus on risk, we may forget that the majority of those who fall into this genetic risk category remain well. Uh, the article doesn't mention it, but I'll tell you, it's only about 20 or 25% of uh, those who have a close relative who wind up getting the illness themselves. Looking for biological mechanisms that can protect against this illness opens up a completely new direction for developing new treatments. This research should give people hope that even though mental illness runs in families, it is possible to beat the odds at the so-called genetic lottery. Well, it's an interesting finding in that they've documented, you can see uh, different patterns of wiring and connectivity in the brains of uh, people who are close relatives of those with bipolar disorder, but who don't have it. Um, 
hopefully they can then take the next step and uh, learn more about how these different patterns develop and uh, then take a step beyond that to see if there's a way of fostering these different, more adaptive, more resilient patterns in those who have relatives who have bipolar disorder in order to prevent them from developing it. Or at the very least, perhaps learn something more about the neuroanatomy and neurobiology of bipolar disorder, which potentially could lead the way toward better treatments. And we certainly could use that. Uh, Right now, a lot of the treatments for bipolar disorder have pretty severe side effects, and this is why bipolar patients don't like taking them. Uh, they feel that it dulls their normal spontaneity and creativity and mood reactivity, uh, and <clears throat> so it's common for them to stop the medicine just so they can feel again. But, of course, when they do that, they usually become manic and it becomes much more difficult to get them leveled out again without uh, very aggressive amounts of medication, which then dull them, and it just becomes this uh, vicious cycle like that. All right. Well, hopefully that research will bear further fruit in the future. And uh, here's a, a lighter item on psychiatry today. Psychologists find out you may be musical and not even know it. The old adage says practice makes perfect, but a study from the University of Cambridge has shown that personality also plays a key role in musical ability, even for those who don't play an instrument. In a study published in the Journal of Research and Personality, a team of psychologists identified that the personality trait of openness predicts musical ability and sophistication. People who score highly on openness are imaginative, have a wide range of interests, and are open to new ways of thinking and changes in their environment. Previous convention is held that the amount you practice is key to success. His ideas received widespread attention earlier this decade when writer Malcolm Gladwell argued it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in any domain, whether it's sports, music, art, or chess, but scientists are now discovering there may be other factors involved as well. Psychologists teamed with the BBC to recruit over 7,000 volunteers, a large study on personality and musical expertise, the largest to date. They tested participants on various musical abilities, including melodic memory and rhythm perception. Performance was then linked to scores on personality traits such as openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And they found that aside from musical experience, the next best predictor of musical ability was personality and specifically openness. People who score high on this trait are open to new ways of thinking. People who score low on this were closed and more set in their ways, prefer routine and the familiar, and tend to have more conventional values. Someone high on openness will take a vacation to a new destination each year, whereas someone low on openness is likely to revisit the same location year after year. I kind of take issue with these characterizations. 
Maybe someone who goes to the same place every year just loves it there. And also, uh, the people who uh, are closed can also be very good musicians. Hmm. Well, they also found that extroversion was linked to higher self-reported singing abilities. Not, not, not uh, surprising. But the links between personality and performance on the musical tasks were present even for people who indicated they didn't play an instrument. So they have the potential for talent but aren't aware of it. <clears throat> well, these series of studies are telling us is that there are factors beyond our awareness and control that influence our musical experience. Now, there's a test you can take. If you go to www.themusicquiz.org, you can check your own musical ability, preferences, and personality. The results are important for teachers and educators. This information about students' personality to see who might be most successful in various musical activities. And maybe target these kids for say, hey, did you ever think about playing a musical instrument? Is there anyone you would like to try? Now, this is a little bit scary. They say one day science may be able to identify the personality, cognitive, and neurobiological factors that lead to musical genius. Hmm. I don't know. I think our way of finding prodigies accidentally is a lot better. Uh, personality has a far more pervasive role in our everyday musical experiences than we appreciate, as this research shows. But scientists are only now beginning to focus on the nature of musicality in non-musicians. The idea is that there are people who are out there who may be primed to be musical but never played anything is a topic that the educational and political spheres should begin to take into consideration. There could be other factors in addition to personality that affect the development of musical ability. For example, what role does parenting play in fostering musicality in their children? Do certain parenting styles encourage musicality more than others? Perhaps such questions will be addressed in future research. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show, folks. I hope that you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you. And I sincerely hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call... Dr. Scott. Good night, and thank you so much for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.